And so, Lord God, we pray that you would descend upon your sanctuary. You would melt down the old, cold heart of stone. And you would fill us as your living temple with your fire. We ask it, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So why, uh, why should you fear God? That's the question. Um, Solomon said it's the beginning of wisdom. Jesus said to his friends, he said, yes, I tell you, fear him. It's all very well to laugh at the military, but when one considers the meaning of life, it is a struggle between alternative viewpoints of life itself. And without the ability to defend one's own viewpoint against other, perhaps more aggressive ideologies, then reasonableness and moderation could quite simply disappear. That is why we'll always need an army. And may God strike me down were it to be otherwise. Don't stand there, Corbin! Oh, you've never seen the hand of God before! I love that. Life is a struggle. That's why we'll always need an army. May God strike me down if it would be otherwise. Don't stand there gawking like you've never seen the hand of God before. I think most people fear God because the hand of God is all-powerful. So we refer to earthquakes and storms and tsunamis, right? We refer to those things as acts of God because they can't really be explained by the power of any human, human hand. We fear God because He's powerful and He's, He's just. And by just, we mean that you really can't sneak anything by Him, right? In other words, he won't take any crap from us, and he's kind of neurotic about it. So you better join his team, tie to the church, or he might smite you like Sodom or roast you like Gomorrah. After earthquakes, storms, and tsunamis, the angel in the Revelation does say, Fear God, for the hour of his judgment has come. And Jesus did say, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul, that's psyche in Greek, and body, in Gehenna, sometimes translated hell. I, I think most folks would say fear God because he's keeping a record of every sin and he's kind of neurotic. Fear God because he's keeping a record of every sin and because he is just and because his judgment is eternal fire. Fear God because he might not forgive. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness. So we don't need to fear. No! That's not what he just said, right? Did you hear this? With you there is forgiveness that, so that in order that, you may be feared. Is that like a Bible typo? There's a whole industry of modern scholarship around finding Bible typos. Is that a Bible typo? Or have we radically, epically misunderstood forgiveness and fear? Why would forgiveness make us fear? This is Alex. 
I met him in 2004 on a trip to Colombia to meet with pastors suffering from persecution from drug cartels, drug lords. When he was a new believer, when Alex was a new believer, his father was murdered by a terrorist guerrilla working for one of the drug lords. And those guerrillas would then threaten him and his mother, often with machetes and, and with death. He shared with us how he struggled to understand the gifts of God until he uh, came to realize, because he was a new believer at that time. He said he struggled to understand the gifts of God until he came to realize that the gift of God is God. Body broken, blood shed. Well, anyway, during that time, as he was wrestling with all these things, Alex worked at a banana plantation, and every day he rode back and forth uh, to work on the plantation from, from his village along with all the other workers in the village. One day, a paramilitary group working for one of the drug lords boarded the bus, made everyone lie face down, and then began walking around shooting each person in the back of the head. And then they would take a machete and sever the head just to make a point. A bullet passed between Alex's eyes, blowing one eye out of the socket and damaging the other. Alex told us that he thought he was going to die. And he said it was then that he remembered that he hadn't told any of the gunmen about Jesus. And so he just started face down, lying in the, in the bus with a bullet through his head. He started screaming, Jesus loves you! Jesus loves you! Jesus loves you! One of the gunmen listened to this, screamed, Shut up! took his machete and swung it at Alex's neck. But it wouldn't go through. And then he tried again. He swung at Alex's neck, and, and it wouldn't go through. He kept swinging the machete, and I suppose Alex kept screaming, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, and the machete wouldn't go through. Alex said it must have been the power of God. The gunman finally freaked out. And they all fled, leaving Alex tied to 25 headless corpses. And now Alex stood before us, blind, weeping, body broken, as he said this, to love the Lord is everything. There is nothing else. Years later, Alex went to seminary and began working in a prison. One afternoon, he, he met the man that tried to kill him. And he told the man that he forgave him. My friend Rich, who was translating for Alex and one of the leaders on the trip, he stopped Alex at that point and he said, Alex, tell everyone uh, how the man reacted when you forgave him. And I remember Alex stopped and he said, he was afraid. Afraid. I would imagine that that man had built an entire universe around vengeance, power, and fear. But now as he looked at, Ale at Alex, as he looked at Alex, that universe began to, to crumble. It crumbled in the presence of a greater fear, an unspeakable power, and an entirely different kind of vengeance. I mean, maybe it wasn't just Alex that said, I forgive. But a slaughtered lamb standing on a throne there is forgiveness, selach, with you that you may be feared. According to my lexicon, and now I quote, this verb together with a few others such as barah to create is used in Scripture solely of God. Selach is used of God's forgiveness. Never does this word in any of its form refer to people forgiving each other. Remember, how we looked at this, how David said, against you and you only have I sinned. Some think David was being callous towards Bathsheba and Uriah when he said that. 
But I suspect that he was glimpsing a profound truth, and that was that the Lamb of God was in Bathsheba and Uriah. That it wasn't simply their life, Uriah's life, that he took. It was God's life, and now he would experience God's judgment. He said, against you and you only have I sinned, so that you would be justified in your judgment. God's judgment was forgiveness, remember? The son of David died, and the son of David was born. And I imagine David died, and David was born with that son of David. I imagine his view of reality crumbled, and then it was reborn with the son of David. He took the life and discovered that he was given the life. That was God's judgment. Forgiveness. In Romans, Paul explains that David sinned so that God could judge, and David could then glorify God for his judgment, as if the judgment was eternal, and the sin was this like temporal thing in order to open David's eyes to God's eternal judgment. That's upside down and backwards for us, right? We think God's judgment is the result of our sin, and Paul talks as if God's judgment is eternal, and he allows us to sin just so we can see his, his judgment. Verse 3. And, and I, by the way, I, I suppose all of that was terrifying to David, if you, if you remember what he went through. But verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be feared. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. It means to, like, keep an account. As if God had a set of books, and he's trying to keep, keep, keep track, balance his books. Psalm 103, David writes this. He does not deal with us according to our sins. And now it seems he doesn't even keep a record of our sins. He's not making a list, checking it twice, so he can find out who's naughty and nice. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul writes this, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Some Bibles translate that love is not resentful, but literally translated, Paul writes this, love does not calculate, lagizomai, keep a record of the evil. He does not calculate the evil. God is love, and his entire commandment is love. It's everything I'm supposed to do, and love doesn't make a list. And yet our entire society, our sociology, our psychology, even our definition of life itself is built around making a list and checking it twice so we can find out who's naughty and nice. I mean, that's why many of us go to church, right? That's why we want the knowledge of good and evil. That's how we construct a mental and emotional map of reality. Think about it. At first, we don't know what's bad. And we don't have a record of the bad or the good. We just enjoy the presence of mom and dad as, as a baby. But before long, we start keeping a record of wrongs. We go to school, and everything is about our record of wrongs, which determines our record of, of rights so we can make ourselves good. You're a fourth grader, fifth grader, or sixth grader based on your, on your record. You know who to eat lunch with and who not to eat lunch with, right? Because of the record you keep in your head. You know who's cool and who's a dweeb because of the record of wrongs that you are mentally preparing. You get a, a job and maybe a wife or a husband because of your record. You can vote or not vote, drive or not drive because 
because of your record. Our entire judicial system is built around the knowledge of good and evil with which we can maintain a record of wrongs. That's what they keep a record on you about, right? Record of wrongs. In order that you can keep yourselves, we can keep ourselves right and keep ourselves safe. You probably even keep a record on everyone you know whether you are very conscious of it or not. You, you keep the record to keep yourself safe. In fact, you probably manufacture a record even for those you don't know to keep your, your ego safe and your view of reality safe. When you see someone on the street in need of help, looks like they might be in need of help, and you don't want to help, what do you do? Well, it's helpful to construct a record of their wrongs and think, well, you know, they deserve whatever they got. <laughs> they deserve it. So I'm going home. When you eat your steak while others are starving, it's tempting to think that they kind of deserve to be starving, for if they don't deserve to be starving, it's hard to justify you and your dinner. It's how I guard my ego. It's why I get offended. I mean, when someone wins an award with a record of wrongs worse than me, what do I think? That's not fair. That's not just. I expect life to be fair, which means those with the best record should win and those with the worst record should lose. We even say things like, life is a struggle, like the officer in the video, right? It's a struggle over our record. In fact, we even suspect that heaven is the survival of the fittest, that heaven is for those who have the least wrongs on their list, which kind of does make you rejoice at the wrongs on your neighbor's list, right? I mean, you think that's right. Rejoicing at wrongs and keeping a list. And Paul writes, love does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices with the truth. Love keeps no record of wrongs. I mean, you really think that one through, and that could be dangerous. I mean, love keeps no record of wrongs. We think, well, fine then. That's how love will get himself crucified. Understand? My mental and emotional map is basically my record of, of wrongs that I have constructed in my own head. I, I think it's called my psyche. If God keeps no record of wrongs and God creates reality, then my reality might be just an absurd illusion. It might be backwards, upside down, and opposed to my creator. And you see, that's a bit frightening. I may have absolutely no justification for the person that I think is me. Now you may say, oh, come on, Peter. Um, get real. Clearly, God marks iniquities, and he keeps a record of wrong. That's why Christ died, to pay our debt and balance God's books. Colossians 2.13, God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt which stood against us with its legal demands. So it's true that Christ canceled our record of debt. But if love keeps no record of wrongs, maybe God didn't write the record, the record of wrongs. It's true that the dead are judged by deeds recorded in the books in Revelation 20, but maybe God didn't write those books. The Lamb also has a, a, a book, but it's not a record of wrongs. It's the book of life and the list of names. Maybe we wrote the book, 
the books and, and the record of, of debt, and, and we start writing the day we listen to the snake whisper, hey, take knowledge of the good and the evil so you can keep a record of wrongs, a record of the bad, and make yourself in the image of God. Maybe God didn't write the record. Paul writes, sin is not counted where there is no law. I think it was the accuser that suggested taking the law. He suggested it to Adam and Eve so they would start counting and start accusing and start writing records of wrong. God surely knows our sin, but he doesn't seem to be interested in counting our sins. Jesus died for our sins, but not because God was counting. Actually, Jesus is the presence of God not counting. I mean, listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ. He's talking about on the cross, right? God was in Christ reconciling the world, not some of the world, the world to himself, not counting, not logizomai, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, which must be the message of not counting. Since the Reformation, some have argued that on the cross, Jesus simply balanced God's books, you know, so that God would stop hating us and he could begin loving us. It's a rather bizarre idea for several reasons, not least of which is that according to Scripture, God doesn't even keep the books. Or at least a record of wrongs. He doesn't mark iniquities or keep a record of wrongs, but perhaps he does keep something like a record of rights. A wrong and evil is the absence of something, but a right, a good, is the presence of God's something, right? It's God's life within us. So maybe God is like the mother of a toddler who constantly, well, just overlooks her child's failures but celebrates every success in the form of uh, artwork, crayon drawings and macaroni art uh, pasted to the refrigerator and in the form of a scrapbook that celebrates every little good thing, every wonderful thing her child has done. Paul writes that God will render to each one of us according to his deeds in Romans, and yet he goes on to reveal that what God renders is always grace, not payment. Now, I don't know if I'm saying all of this exactly correctly, but if forgiveness doesn't simply mean balancing the books, maybe not even keeping the books, it's no wonder that forgiveness might just terrify people like us. Our record of wrongs is why we think we're right, which is terribly wrong. We think we should fear God because he might not forgive our record of wrongs. And the psalmist tells us to fear God because he does forgive and keeps no record of wrongs. We think justice is keeping a record of wrongs and refusing to forgive because you demand payment. We think justice is counting sins and not forgiving. We think justice is retribution. Retribution, I think that's the word we use for it. Ezekiel 33 has kind of always terrified me. I don't know if you've read Ezekiel, but there's some crazy stuff in the Old Testament. This is Ezekiel 33. God calls Ezekiel son of man, and then he tells Ezekiel to preach to the people saying this. Listen closely. If you do right, and I'm summarizing it now because it's long. You can go read it. But if you do righteousness all your life and then do unrighteousness, none of your righteousness will count. You will surely die, or surely do die. You're dying. Yet I tell you, uh, that is uh, the one that is surely dying. I tell you, if you then turn and do right, none of your sins will count. 
and you will surely live or surely are living. So none of my good deeds or what I think are my good deeds may count. And none of my bad deeds may count, which means God's judgment is not retributive. Next verse, God says this. Your people say the way of the Lord is not just. Because we think that, right? That's not fair. That's not just. The way of the Lord is not just when it is their own way that is not just. In three chapters, God describes a day when he will cleanse them all of iniquity, cleanse them of all iniquity. He will forgive them, give them a new heart and a new spirit. One heart pumping one spirit, one river of life, the life. So justice is not paying God back. That's just like an insane illusion. Justice is not paying God back. Justice is God placing his spirit in you and giving you his own heart. Justice is not getting what you deserve. Justice is God getting what God deserves. And that's you in the image of God, the image of love. And love keeps no record of wrongs. Love just loves loving. That's the way love is. Justice is not keeping the books. Justice is the end of all bookkeeping. Justice is not the opposite of forgiveness. Justice is forgiveness. It's the forgiveness of God. Deuteronomy 32, all his ways are justice. Jesus didn't die, so God would love you. <laughs> God is love. He's relentless love, eternal, free, relentless love. Jesus didn't die, so God would love you. Jesus died so that you could finally love God. That's justice. So God is not interested in your record of wrongs. He just wants you to love love. And so he gives you his heart. Jesus. John Winthrop, one of our founding fathers, he used to tell a story about a poor man who stole wood from his woodpile one, during one particularly harsh winter. Retributive justice would demand that that poor man pay back all the wood that he had stolen and burned, right? But Winthrop found the man and said this to him, it's been a really hard winter. And I just want you to know that you may freely take all the wood from my woodpile that you want. And then he would tell his friends, in this way, I cured that man of stealing. <laughs> he called that substantive justice. And I would imagine that it created a new substance in the heart of that poor man. And that substance was gratitude. Gratitude for grace. See, we didn't just take wood from God's woodpile. I think Scripture is saying that we took the life of the good who is God from the tree. In fact, every time you sin, I think you take the life of the good from the tree in the garden. I'm not saying that all sins are simply the same, but that all sins reveal the same poverty of spirit. And all sins result in death, Christ's death and your own death. Sin is taking the life, and you could never pay for the life, except perhaps with knowledge that you took it. And that's called confession, when you acknowledge that knowledge. You could never pay for the life, that is the good. God could only give the life, which is the good, which is himself. And you see, that's called forgiveness. 
The death of Christ on the tree in the garden and his resurrection from the dead in that very same garden is the knowledge of the good, which is the life freely given to us. It is the revelation of grace. And it is vengeance upon the heart of stone and the creation of the heart of mercy. It destroys the desire to count and creates the desire to worship. Justice is not the opposite of forgiveness. It's the revelation of the forgiveness of God. Forgiveness is heart surgery. <laughs> that can be scary. Forgiveness is heart surgery. It's open heart surgery. Nothing is as terrifying to your old nature as the revelation of God's nature. Forgiveness is the vengeance of love. Years ago, a man at our church, when we first started the church years ago, when it was lookout and well, it's 20 years ago or whatever now. And this man has passed away. Sweet, wonderful man. He loaned me $20,000 for a down payment on our house in, in Golden. One day he sat me down and he said, Peter, I just want you to know I'm forgiving the debt. I remember I said thank you, but it just like ripped me apart inside. Something in me wanted to scream, No! I'd lie awake trying to convince myself that I really earned the 20000 You know what I mean? Like, he really should give it to me because I've been working really, really hard and, and I deserve it. Or I'd imagine ways that I would still pay the 20000 Well, I will then blah, 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 blah. Or I'd imagine ways that he really would demand the 20000 even though he said he forgiven the 20000 You see, I'd lie awake trying to protect what? My ego. The illusion that I built my own house. Imagine if I really believed that I wasn't just forgiven a house, but I was forgiven me and all things with me, including the very life of God, which I stole from the tree. The justice of God is the forgiveness of God, and the forgiveness of God is the vengeance of love, the vengeance of God. Vengeance upon the arrogant human ego that imagines that it is its own creator. Fear him who has the power to destroy body and psyche in Gehenna. He will destroy your, he will destroy your psyche. He'll destroy your psyche either in Gehenna or at the foot of his cross. Both are the vengeance of God. Isaiah 61.1. Listen closely to this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then there are a few other verses that are very familiar to you. Verse 2. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or grace, the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Jesus quoted that in the synagogue at the start of his ministry, but he stopped just short of the day of vengeance. Some think that's because he disagreed with Isaiah. I think that's wrong. I don't think Jesus disagreed with Isaiah. He quoted Isaiah all the time. I don't think he disagreed with Isaiah. I think it was because he knew that those people could not yet understand Isaiah, but in three years, they would. The year of the Lord's favor is the Jubilee. It's the Sabbath of the Sabbath. When property was returned, prisoners were to be set free, and debts were all canceled. The year of the Lord's favor was the cancellation of all records of wrong and the cessation of all counting. It was a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And of course, there is no evidence that Israel ever celebrated the Jubilee. And I doubt that they ever did because the Jubilee is an absolute violation of our mental and emotional map. 
It's the violation of the human psyche. And it's the vengeance of our God. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. He proclaimed the Jubilee, and it began with the day of vengeance. That was the day that we took his life and he gave his life. That was the day that he lifted his head on a tree in a garden, and he, and he cried out. It began the moment that he cried out, Father, forgive them, and it is finished. That's justice. That's forgiveness. That's vengeance on the human ego. That's the revelation of the good hanging on a tree in a garden. Psalm 9-7, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. In the revelation, we saw his throne. Remember what we saw on his throne standing there? Uh, a slaughtered lamb, uh, a slaughtered lamb. I think it's the same slaughtered lamb that showed up in Alex as he said to that man trying to kill him, Jesus loves you and I forgive you. In the Revelation, after the opening of the sixth seal, just before the seventh, John sees every person, every person, running from the face of God, which is a slaughtered lamb. They run in fear. For the presence of the lamb is literally the end of their world and their psyche, their mental, emotional map. They run and hide, and the only place to hide is hell. The caves, the darkness, the depths of the earth. They hide from their greatest fear, which is also their deepest desire. They hide from the presence of relentless love. We each hide in a, in a fortress, I think, that, well, that we think is ourself but is really only an illusion. We hide in self-justifications, records of wrongs, and imagined rights. We, we hide in a house that we think that we have constructed. We hide in that house hanging on to a life that we think is our own. We hide from love, longing for love, in a house that turns in, into hell. We hide in that house. And so, maybe it's a blessing. when someone sins against that house. And even more a blessing when you might sin against another's. Sin is taking the life from the house of another. Sin is drawing blood. Love is bleeding the life into the house of another. Love is giving blood. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and, and sent his son, who is the life, to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. A river of life flows from the throne. You see the slaughtered lamb. A river of life flows from the throne, and, and it never, ever stops. It does not come in 12-ounce sealed containers that you can store in your bar, barn, you can count, and then you can buy, and you can sell. God does not dispense it by, by measure. M maybe it's a blessing that someone might take the life from you so you might learn to give the life to them. And maybe it's a blessing that you have taken the life from another so you can see that God is always giving the life to you when you obviously don't deserve it. So for Christ's sake, don't sin. I'm not saying sin. For Christ's sake, don't sin because sin hurts the Lord. Don't sin, but the fact that you have sin might be a blessing. In fact, it might release the river. 
Maybe God consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all, just like Scripture says. Maybe God allows all of us to sin in order that all of us might learn to love. Maybe we can't learn to love by reading laws in a book. We can only learn to love by watching God bleed for us and then bleeding for our neighbor. And now listen closely. Maybe God allows each of us to bleed because we are one body. And unless we learn to bleed one for the other, we will all die, never ever having learned to live. <laughs> Remember what we learned in the Revelation? Life is not the survival of the fittest. Life is the sacrifice of the fittest for all. Life is a dance of love. To bleed for another is your greatest fear and your deepest desire. Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He, the psalmist is in the depths. He's in hell. Perhaps he needs forgiveness. Perhaps uh, he uh, needs to needs to forgive. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you might be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul, he's longing for the Lord. I wait. My soul longs. Uh, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope the word of God is the word of love and the revelation of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the psalmist's greatest fear and deepest desire. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. So God has created a desire in him, right? A desire for something. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord... There is relentless love, steadfast love, hesed, and with him is plentiful redemption. He is relentless love, and it's his life that you're called to bleed. So I'm going to say this again, and I'm going to keep saying it probably till the day I die. When one person loves, it looks like a man hanging on a cross. When two people love, it looks like a good marriage and a great honeymoon. When all people love, it's the kingdom of God and the body of Christ. He is the life that flows from the throne and through every vessel in his body to dam the river is death. To bleed the river is to live life eternal. Verse 8, And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Do you notice that the psalmist he refers to Israel as one man? And do you remember that we are to be grafted into that man? And do you remember that that man is the very body of Christ? And did you notice that all his iniquities will be redeemed? That means that none of our sins will be wasted. God will use them all to teach each of us to love. Love is the will to bleed for your neighbor. And when we all love, we will all be infinitely, ecstatically happy. So for Christ's sake, don't sin but be grateful that you have sinned. Sin is taking the life. Love is giving the life. Just keep giving the life and you won't need to sin. Uh, don't sin, but be grateful that you have sinned. Don't, don't, I'm saying don't waste your sin. You've already you've sinned enough. You don't need to, you, one sin is enough. You don't need to, but don't waste it. 
Confess your sin, because what do we do? We hide it, we bury it, we bury it in the depths of our isolated, lonely house. Confess your sin, pursue your sin that God teaches you of his love and gives you his will to love. And now I need to say one other thing. Forgiveness is not liberal. And forgiveness is not conservative. Forgiveness is the new creation. The temptation of the Sadducees is to tell you that you just haven't sinned much, or there is no such thing as sin. But if you haven't sinned much, you cannot be forgiven much. The temptation of the Pharisees is to tell you that although you've sinned, well, you can pay for your sins, which means you're not forgiven at all. If you've sinned at all, you cannot pay at all. You have taken all the life of Christ on the tree, but you've taken the life of Christ that God can convince you that he's given you the life of Christ, which is himself. He's the one thing you fear and the one thing you desire most. Many years ago, the Bishop of Paris stood in the pulpit of the Notre Dame Cathedral and he told the three young men that had entered that cathedral 30 years before. They were cynical, self-centered, and secretly miserable. Two of them dared the third to make a false confession, a bogus confession to the, to the old priest, just for kicks, and to see if they could con the old priest. In fact, they placed a bet. The old priest listened to the lies, sensed the arrogance, and then he said this, Very well, my son. This is your penance. Go to the chapel and stand before the crucified Christ. Look into his face and say this. All this you did for me, and I don't give a damn. Well, in order to win the bet, the young man uh, followed through on the penance. He walked into the chapel or at least he tried. He walked into the chapel. He stood before the crucifix. He looked into the face of the crucified Christ, and he said, all this you did for me, and I don't give a... All this you did for me, and I... He couldn't finish the sentence. For a dam, or a, a dam, D-A-M-N, a, a dam of self-righteousness, arrogance, bitterness, and pride suddenly began to break, and something began to flow. The blood began to flow. At that point, the Archbishop of Paris, telling the story, would lean over the pulpit and say, 30 years ago, that lonely young man was me. You understand, that lonely young man is each one of us. And so on the night that he was betrayed by us, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for what? The forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you.
Don't stand there gawping like you'd never seen the hand of God before. That's the hand of God. Sometimes it can shake the earth and consume people. Uh, sometimes cities and nations are uh, consumed by eternal and unquenchable fire, sometimes uh, by the hand of God. But the hand of God is always bleeding for you. This is why you fear God. And this is why you will love Him. This is how He makes you in His own image. Believe the gospel. Amen. God, I'm just beginning to see. I thought that you were neurotic, God. I thought you were a neurotic bookkeeper. But I'm beginning to see that you are absolute, relentless, unstoppable grace. Lord, like the song says, when I get a good glimpse of that, it scares me. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. So God, I thank you for the things that have happened in the past, and even for those places where I've been afraid, but I thank you that perfect love will cast out fear. And the very thing that frightened me most is my deepest desire that you will fulfill and are fulfilling. It's in your name, Lord God, that we give you praise. In the name of Jesus, God is salvation. Amen. So did you hear it? Isn't it weird that we've sung this all this time as grace that taught my heart to fear? That means forgiveness taught my heart to fear. And forgiveness, my fears relieved. And in talking about that, we talk about all kinds of things, like the concept of justice and around the edges of penal substitutionary atonement. Too many theological concepts for a sermon, but... The sermon is online, the manuscript, and I put a whole bunch of footnotes in this one with quotes and illustrations and scripture verses so you can go and wrestle with it. But uh, it's really offensive to us at first, and yet I think it's thrilling once we've turned around. I was thinking about this this week, that imagine yourself as a young parent and someone came to you and they said in regards to your infant, they said, hey, I can guarantee you that no one will ever sin against your child for the rest of your life. Do, do, you, do you want that gift? At first you might say, well, of course. But if you thought about it a minute, you would say, hell no. Because if no one ever sinned against your child, your child would never learn to love. And if someone came to you and they said, hey, I can guarantee that your child will never sin. Well, I think at first you, you, you might say, oh yeah, that's wonderful. But if you thought about it a minute, you'd say, hell no. Because that would mean your child would never learn to be forgiven. They would never learn to receive love. 
You see, Scripture tells us that one day all sin will be destroyed. God will destroy it at all, and we will all just love each other in this party that, that will never stop. But what am I saying? I'm saying don't sin, but if you've experienced sin. Has anybody here experienced sin? Either they were sinned against or they sinned against someone else. What I'm saying is don't waste it. Um, and, and this is tough, but, but confess it. The greatest gift that you can give to this church is to confess your sins one to another. We're the priesthood of all believers. And when we learn to bleed for each other, when we learn to speak God's grace to each other, uh, we begin to experience the kingdom of God. And now I can't explain all the details of all the things that we go through. I, I, can, just, I can just reassure you that God is love and God is in charge. And so give him everything and trust him with everything. And believe me, he'll make all things new. That's the gospel. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.